As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. Gladden the souls of your servants, for to you, O Lord, do we lift up our souls. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So give ear, O Lord, to our prayer and listen to our plea for grace. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth and unite our hearts to fear your name. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Joshua, chapter 7. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll most likely find that on page 232. Uh, Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. And if you're visiting with us this evening, we've been considering a series through the book of Joshua, and we've come to Joshua chapter 7. And so we've come to this chapter. We want to read the entire chapter together and then think about uh, this portion of God's Word. So Joshua chapter 7, we'll begin our reading at verse 1. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own Word. But the people of Israel broke faith in regards to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth, to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. 
And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought near the clans of Judah, and the clans of the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel and laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that they had. And they brought him up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. One of the advantages of preaching straight through a book is that nobody has to wonder if I chose this text uh, because I'm suspicious that there's someone in the congregation who's committed some great sin And I'm trying to put them on display for everyone. Um, This is just coming up in the general order of the preaching of God's word. Um, It's a heavy passage. It's probably not one that we would, again, like we heard this morning, turn to naturally for our own just sort of enrichment and enjoyment. Um, It's a difficult passage to go through. um, But it reminds us of the truth that the Gospels tell us of. Uh, Romans 6.23, we read that the wages of sin is death. Uh, This passage tells us very clearly how seriously God takes sin and covenant breaking. Uh, He wants wants his people to understand this sobering reality very clearly. And there are are passages in scripture that reinforce this this idea very forcefully. Um, And this is one such passage that reminds us that the wages of sin is death and teaches us something important about uh, God's wrath against sin. Um, This is the story of Ai and the defeat of Ai uh, that is sort of strange to the Israelites. It comes as them to a great great shock. Uh, They don't understand what's happening. And we're led in on the story to the reason behind it before the story starts that we might understand what God is doing in this passage uh, and that we might understand some vital things. We need to understand the severity of God's wrath against sin. And God wants to teach us first of the cause of his wrath Uh, That God is not angry for no reason. God is angry with sin, the transgression that's committed against him. God wants us to understand the cost of his wrath, uh, that it is a costly thing to sin and fall into the hands 
of an angry God, but God also wants us to understand the cure for his wrath. The reason we're given this passage is so we might not fall into the wrath of God in the way that sinners in the Old Testament fell. Paul explains very clearly in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things are written down for us on whom the end of the ages has come, uh, that we might not fail as they did, that we might understand the lessons of the former generations and not and learn from them and not repeat them. Um, there are times we learn things the hard way, and God doesn't want us to have to learn things the hard way. He wants us to pay attention to his word and avoid uh, his wrath. And so we want to think about what this passage has to teach us about the cause of his wrath, the cost of his wrath, and the cure for his wrath. Uh, as I said, as we begin to see this story, we know the cause for what God is doing, even though the characters in this story do not. We're told very clearly from the beginning that someone has violated the command that God gave them when they fought against Jericho. God had been very clear about the devoted things, the things that God's people were to devote to destruction. And so we know something that they don't know as this passage begins. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Uh, For Achan took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So God had commanded them not to take things from Jericho. We're told that someone named Achan has taken these things from Jericho and that the Lord is angry um, because this has happened. This is important background for us. Um, it's, it's something that is outrageous, we're told in verse 15. Um, he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Um, this is a very serious thing that has been done. It's called breaking faith in verse 1. Um, that someone has broken faith with God. That's the sense of breaching the covenant, breaching God's trust. All of this is pointing to what a serious issue this is. Uh, Lest any of us go, well, you know, what what is really the big deal here? Um, God is is pressing on us. This is a very serious thing, to breach covenant, to do exactly what God has told us not to do. And given who has done it, it's interesting how this sin is described for us. Uh, Notice who stands accused here. Not just Achan, uh, but all of Israel. You notice that in verse 1? But the people of Israel broke faith. Um, It it is accounted to all of them. They're all of them brought into what has happened here. Um, And we might be tempted to say, well, how is that fair? That Achan does this. He's the only one who seems to have done this. Um, We might say out of the whole people of God, that's a pretty good ratio. Um, Just one out of all of them have done this. Um, Is that really such a serious business that you would say all of them have broken faith? Well, you have to remember that's what God had said to the people in Joshua chapter 6. One chapter earlier in verse 18, he said, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Uh, He had warned that anybody violating this would make the whole camp of Israel liable to destruction, bring the sin on the whole camp of Israel. And this is an important thing for us to remember. Um, It's one of the things that we learn in the New Testament when the New Testament says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, Sin committed by one of our members will affect the rest, right? That we have a corporate identity as the people of God. It's a reminder to us not to take an overly individualistic view of how we live lives in this world. 
Um, If we see someone else in sin, we ought to restore them. We shouldn't sit back and say, well, I'm doing fine. That's not my business. Um, God has a corporate identity he's given to his people. We should be on the lookout for one another. And I think what God is teaching his people in this is that they should not only be on the lookout for themselves, that they don't take anything devoted to destruction, but they'd be on the lookout for anyone else who would, that they might save that brother or sister from making the whole people of God an outrage before the Lord. Um, and so we, we're told that this, this affects all of God's people. This is not an individual matter of sin. It's brought everyone into it. Uh, one commentator said, Achan by his sin robbed the whole nation of the purity and holiness it ought to possess before the Lord and had brought upon the people exactly what God threatened in Deuteronomy thirteen seventeen. If they did not do with the devoted things what he commanded them to do, it would bring upon them the fierceness of God's anger. And so we know that this has happened. Uh, we know that the people of Israel are in this state. And even though they don't know what's going on yet, we see that it has a negative impact on everything they do in this story. Even when they don't know that this great sin has been committed, it's having an effect on how they act. Um, The first change we see um, is how the spies report what they've seen in verse 3. They come back and they say, well, you know, AI is not a very big place. It's sort of, it's kind of a climb to get up there. There's no point in tiring out the whole army. Two or three thousand of us should be just fine. To go up there. There's not that many of them. We shouldn't have any problem taking care of them. Um, that's maybe strategically problematic to take too few people to, to go to war when you have more at your disposal and more people means more safety in warfare. But I think we're meant to see this more of just a strategic problem to see this as a real theological problem. Um, this spy report is very different from the report that the spies brought back about Jericho. Um, And one of the big themes we're going to see in Joshua is the theme of unity. All of God's people acting together. A recurring theme we're going to see over and over again is all Israel doing something, or the whole congregation doing something, or all the assembly, or all the tribes. Unity is going to be a big thing. Um, Think about how important it was that all of the tribes crossed the Jordan to fight together to take the land There was this focus on the unity of the people of God and and a focus on God himself going to war for the people. Um, But I think what's what's seen in this spies report is that they've lost something of God's guidance. He's slipping out of their sight as they decide to go to war. What do they say? They are few in number. We're enough. We have the, the strength necessary to take them over. Uh, We should go and do this because they are few in number and we shouldn't have any problem handling them. Uh, Who's been left out of the equation in that kind of talk? It's God. When the spies came back from Jericho, how did they report what they'd found in Jericho? They said, the Lord has given them into our hands. Um, They were putting the trust in God to give the people. Now these spies say, we have the power to take these people. I think it's a sign that God is losing, they're losing sight of their God. They're certainly losing his guidance. And one of the things that they find for sure is not just has the spies report changed, but God has fallen silent. Everything they've done to this point has been done at the Lord's direction. 
The Lord has told them to do something and they've done it. We've seen that great, that great testimony to their faith. God commands and they obey. And now the spies come back and say, we should do this. And God says nothing. Uh, no command is given by God. And no one seems to think that that's a bad thing. That the Lord is silent. Um, this is what is causing the Lord's wrath to fall upon them. The sin has been committed. The sin is now working its way out in terms of things that no one seems to have noticed. Um, that this great wrath has come upon them. That God has fallen silent. That they don't go forth with his counsel. And going forth without his counsel is costly. Uh, we see the cause of his wrath is the great sin that's been committed. And then we see the cost of his wrath. They're defeated in battle. Right? That's particularly troubling when you've, or you're so sure that we have plenty of strength to take these people. There should be no problem at all. And you not only lose, but you're routed. That's how it's described in verses 4 and 5. Not just a defeat, but it's a rout. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as, as far as Shabarim and struck them in the descent. This is a people getting routed. They're running for their lives and getting killed while they run for their lives. Um, they can't even organize a retreat. And we've talked before about, you know, warfare at this time. One of the worst things that can happen is that people just panic and run. Um, even today, you have to fight an orderly retreat. You can't just turn tail and run. That's a good way to get everybody killed. Um, that's how this battle is described. They just turned and ran. And they got hacked down from behind. There was a cost, it was a costly defeat. Not just in terms of lives lost, right? 36 men died in their folly. But the cost for the defeat in their hearts. What do we read at the end of verse 5? Um, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Not the Canaanites. The Israelites. They're now terrified of what this means for their purposes going forward. It's not just a costly defeat in terms of human life. It's a costly defeat in terms of their hearts. They're demoralized by this loss. Uh, this is exactly how, the, how Rahab described the Canaanites in chapter 2. She said, no, they, we've heard of what God did for you. He split the water of the Red Sea, drowned the Egyptians, destroyed the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan. We've heard of what God has done. Our, we, there's just no will to fight. We're terrified of this God that travels and travels with power. Now the Israelites are in the exact same position the Canaanites were in. Um, that's costly in terms of this defeat, costly in terms of lives, costly in the terms of morale. Another cost is that it raises serious doubt about God's promises. Um, it, it shakes them, not only in terms of warfare, but will God really do what he's promised to do? We see jo Joshua and the elders completely confused about what God's purposes might be in all this. They're just on their faces in front of the ark. And when they finally pray, the, the depths of their confusion are expressed in that prayer. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. 
Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? Right? There's total confusion and now doubt has crept in over the promises of God. To the point where they almost sound like the people in the wilderness. They almost sound like that wilderness generation that said, you know, it would have been better if we never left Egypt. Um, the only saving grace here is that they're not grumbling about God behind his back. That's what the wilderness generation did. Instead of grumbling about God behind, about a back, behind his back, they're expressing that confusion to him in prayer. And God receives that. We're allowed to do that. But you see the great doubt it's brought into their minds. Have we just been brought over the Jordan to be destroyed? Um, is the Lord not going with us? Is he not going to be faithful to the promises that he has made? Um, times were pretty good across the Jordan. We were winning back then. Um, we were successful in battle. And now we've come across and we've been delivered into the hands of our enemies. And he imagines a rather bleak future. He says, Lord, we used to have fear on our side. And now fear is going to work against us. It says in verse 9, the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Um, he imagines a pretty bleak future for them. When they hear this little town has defeated us, it's just going to embolden everybody to get together and come out to war against us. The moments of fear are over. Um, and the whole people are going to band together and they'll, they'll destroy us all. And, and really the, the height of his doubt and fear is expressed at the end of his prayer in verse 9 when he says, and what will become of your great name? One of Joshua's biggest concerns is that the glory of the name of God will be compromised. People will talk about him as a God who brought his people across the Jordan and then couldn't deliver. When the going got tough, he got going and they died. You know, Joshua's really pouring out his concern not just for himself but for God. You know, Hallowed be thy name. What's going to happen when people hear that this is the kind of God we serve? Uh, there's doubt. Um, and then there's the danger that God's people really always fear the most is that God is going to leave us. Um, God says in verse 12, if you, don't get a, if you don't get rid of these things, I will be with you no more. There's no worse thing for God's people to imagine than that God will come to us and say, I will be with you no more. There's no bleaker future that God's people can imagine than to be left alone in this world without our God to protect us. And we see in this the cost of when God's people fall into serious sin. That one of the most significant costs when we fall into serious sin is that we lose sense of God's grace for a time. We can lose sense of God's presence with us. It's not that God has gone, but we lose the sense that he's with us. Um, and that's one of the most frightening people, one of the most frightening things for the people of God to come face to face with in this world is the prospect of going it alone in the world without the Lord. Those who know the Lord, that, that chills them the most to hear God say things like what Jesus says in John eight twenty one: I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. It's that terrible reality that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. 
that wrung from him the cry, what, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To know that feeling of being abandoned by God. And, and the reason I belabor that point and the reason I, I'm hammering it, it's not a pleasant thing to think about on a Sunday evening. But I think God wants us to enter into this experience of the people to feel the weight of the wages of sin. Uh, to see what kind of work sin works um, and where we would be without God in the world. To be without hope and without a way forward. And why does God want us to feel the weight of that? Well, as I said earlier, so that we don't enter into that kind of sin. So that we don't follow their bad example and walk into the things that God has told us not to do that will not be for our good. And then we walk into them and we find that they're not for our good. We've lost the sense of his presence and then we cry out, where are you? He doesn't want us to walk into those places. He doesn't want us to find ourselves in those ways. He doesn't want us to enter into those kinds of sin. Not because we're going to war and, you know, we'll have devoted things to destruction that we should not put in our pockets. That's not the lesson to be taken from this. But we do face the temptation to sin every day. And we need to be reminded that sin brings with it misery, always. The greatest lie the devil loves to tell, one of the greatest lies he loves to tell, is that you can have the sin and you can have it without the misery. And that's just not true. Sin is always followed by misery. There's no getting around it. And the greater the sin, the more the misery. And so what does God want his people to do? He wants us to watch and pray so we would not enter into this kind of temptation. Watch and pray that we would not enter into temptation. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do in Matthew 26, 41. He said, because the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm sure that when, a when Achan was standing there with all the other people of God being told what to do when they went to war with Jericho and they were told not to take any of the devoted things, he was on board. Um, I doubt that he was sitting there forming in his mind, I, I, I think I'll just go ahead and bring destruction on Israel and on myself. Um, I'm sure he was on board when it, but what, when it came to finding gold and silver and fancy clothes and thinking, you know, I can take this and no one will be the wiser. Um, the flesh was too weak. And we're more like Achan than we like to admit. And so we have to hear that word of the Lord, watch and pray so that we will not enter into temptation. But secondly, God wants us to enter into their experience, not so that just we avoid the danger so that we watch and pray, but so that we will not despair. So that we will not despair in our sins, to find ourselves in a wretched condition and fear that God will not be good to us if we come to him in prayer. We have to feel the true, the weight of this passage, but we also have to recognize that, that they did what they ought to have done. Not knowing the way forward, they reached out to the Lord. And he told them how to, how to have how to have a path forward where they couldn't see one. Um, God, jo Joshua comes to God about his promises in prayer. Um, God wants us to turn to him. Um, if, if we find ourselves involved in sin, if we can't find a way forward, if we seem like we're in a place where God has abandoned us, he wants us to turn to him and know that he will hear us when we call. Uh, that he is a covenant God who we can seek his face and we can find his cure. 
There's a cure to the wrath of God that Joshua finds as a result of his prayer. Um, there is a cure for the wrath of God that he speaks. God, we're, we're thankful to know in this passage that God speaks again in verse 10. The Lord ends his silence and speaks to Joshua. Now, I know we're only in verse 10 and we have to go to verse 26, but I don't want you to despair that we have so much ways to go yet. We're going we're gonna to consolidate and go quickly through it. But um, the, the cure is important. There is a cure for the wrath of God. And when God speaks again, he tells him and he explains what has happened. And the first thing that's important for God to explain is, I have not failed you, you've failed me. I'm not failing to do anything that I promised to do. I'm doing exactly what I said I would do. I'm not failing you, you're failing me. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. God's word is always true. When things go wrong, it's something we've done, right? There's, there's something we've involved ourselves in, and he corrects that here. I haven't failed you, you've failed me. Um, in this particular instance, I, I haven't failed you, you've failed me. You've done exactly what I told you not to do. Um, and it's sort of emphasized here, it comes across a little more clearly in the Hebrew, but it's, it's emphasized here all of the things that they've done. You know, so Joshua comes in prayer and says, you know, we, we just don't, I, I have no idea what we've done. You know, what is it, Lord? Explain to us. And, and the Lord kind of answers in, in verse 11 and says, Israel has sinned, and, and just kind of, I'll, I'll kind of build it in woodenly from the Hebrew. Israel has sinned, moreover, they have transgressed the covenant that I commanded them. Moreover, they have taken some of the devoted things. Moreover, they have stolen, and moreover, lied, and moreover, put them among their own belongings. So it's not just there's a reason for this. God is coming and saying, there's great reason for this. There's a lot that you've done wrong here. You've pretty much done everything I said not to do. Um, there's great reason for this wrath. So to explain clearly, there's a failure and a big failure on your part. And to explain then what can be done uh, to eliminate this, this failure. Um, and God is honest that unless this sin is exterminated by all of Israel, um, they will remain under the ban and devoted to destruction. That unless this evil is dealt with, um, there can be no restoration, uh, but this evil can be dealt with. And so that's the hope that God gives. Um, God is coming as a judge. Um, that's how this is going to be cured. The Lord says, okay, I'm going to come and judge myself. So consecrate yourselves because I'm coming into the camp. Now, they were to do that before they crossed the Jordan because the Lord was going to come and do wonders among them. God says, today I'm not going to come to do wonders among you. Today I'm coming as judge to root out the cause of this evil and to cure it from Israel. So consecrate yourselves because the day of judgment is coming. And he will come as a judge and they will draw near to him for judgment. And he says, and I will go and, and by lots you'll cast lots and I'll identify who is guilty of this wrongdoing. And then that person must be devoted to destruction. What happened to Jericho needs to happen to that person as a consequence of their sins. Just as Rahab was freed from the consequences of Jericho because she put her trust in the Lord, so Achan has chosen not to obey the Lord, and he's then going to be identified with Jericho. This sort of Rahab in reverse. Um, and so God is going to do that. And so God comes into the camp and does exactly what he said he was going to do. That's why we were given all those names about Achan. 
Right? Who is Achan? He's the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. That becomes important because then God runs through all of those names in isolating Achan as the one who sinned. And Joshua calls for and then receives Achan's confession. Um, and this is all important that Achan confesses to doing what God has accused him of doing, that he admits what he's done, that they find the evidence of what he's done. They put that evidence before all of Israel. Um, it's important to justify the Lord's name. Um, this is not sort of a casting of lots that isn't connected to God, that God's not identifying his truth through them. This is not some rush to judgment or, you know, the Salem witch trials, burning people who aren't witches. Um, this is God clearly identifying the wrongdoer, the wrongdoer admitting it, the evidence of his wrongdoing being found and laid before the people so that his guilt is proved beyond all doubt. So that God is shown to be a just judge when the judgment is executed against Achan. Achan and everything that belongs to him is brought to the valley of Achor. Sentence is passed by Joshua in the Lord's name against Achan and all that belongs to him. And he's killed and all who are with him are killed and then everything is burned with fire. And the mound is raised over him. And the writer tells us in the day that Joshua was written and that mound is still there. Uh, you can see the evidence of his sin there in the valley of trouble marking the place of the troubler of Israel. And when that happens, God's wrath is turned away. Um, when those things are devoted to destruction, then God's wrath is turned away from the people. Um, then the Lord turned from his burning anger, we read in verse 26. That's important. There is a cure to God's wrath. It's a cure that comes as a result of judgment. It's not a happy story, as we've said. One commentator said, this is the sad story of a bright beginning marred. Israel had begun so well in this new generation, and that bright beginning has been marred in this death. Um, but what does it remind God's people of? It reminds us of if all there was was sin and God's wrath, there'd be no hope. The only way the trouble could be put to rest the only way God's fierce anger could be put to rest is by our destruction. Um, it's a reminder to us that the wages of sin is death. We are all troublers of Israel. We are all sinners worthy of this kind of condemnation. And the only way that the, the wrath can pass is if it's turned away by judgment. Um, and what is this teaching for us? It's that's what Jesus Christ came to do for his people to enter into our judgment in our place. That's what the cross of Jesus represents. Um, he went to the cross for all the troublers of Israel who should have died in their sin, who should have had God's judgment pronounced against them, where God would have had all the evidence he needed to pronounce a just judgment against sinners. Um, we even come and confess our sins, that we are sinners. We don't, we don't turn away from that or pretend it's not true. Um, we, we would have nothing to say when the Lord appeared as judge and accused us as sinners if there wasn't someone who could turn the wrath of God away from us. Um, someone who could say, I will take the wrath that they deserve. I will be devoted to destruction in their place that, that your anger might be turned away from all the people. 
That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done by his cross. Um, and that's why anytime we think, again, like we, we did when we thought about this with Jericho, that the judgment is too heavy or that somehow this means that God is unjust or God is too hard-hearted or cruel, that sin is being dealt with in too strict a manner, we have to be reminded that the Lord went through that himself on the cross for us. Um, that he is not just the judge, but he is the one who sacrificed himself for sinners. Who went to the cross so that his fierce wrath would be turned away. And that when he turns away God's wrath from us, that cures his anger. Um, that satisfies the wrath of God. It, it turns it away and it restores us to the favor of God. We're returned. That's what Israel will find, that they've returned now to their former status as God's covenant people who have nothing between them and their God, who restored his awesome presence, his abundant provision, um, all of the things that God had promised to do as their covenant God. They are truly restored. Um, that's what Jesus Christ has done. In the prophecy of Hosea, we, we considered that with with Reverend Cortez many weeks ago, but there's a section in Hosea where God promises that he will turn the valley of Achor into a door of hope. He will turn the valley of trouble into a door of hope. And that's the cross where God turns the valley of trouble into a door of hope. Uh, reminds us that he is condemned in our place so that we might live. That's ultimately the story that God's people can take away from this passage. It reminds all of us in closing, don't hide your sin thinking you can keep it from God. God will find it out. There's no point in trying to hide from an all-seeing God. Um, but what does God want us to do? To turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. The only one who can turn away the wrath of God from us and turn it upon himself so that we can live and be restored to the favor of God. Um, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ, the condemnation you deserved was executed on the Lord on the cross. And by his cross, he's then turned your valley of trouble into a door of hope. Uh, where God will not regard you as a troubler of Israel, but as one of his dearly loved people. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we all find that by faith and repentance. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage. It's hard to read, but it does remind us of the cost of sin and the great wrath that you have against it because you are a just God, because it is deserving of your wrath. And how thankful we are that you've provided a cure for that wrath in our Lord Jesus Christ to know that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become your righteousness, who received the curse of our sins on himself, that we might go free. And so we thank you for the lesson that's taught in this passage, Lord. We pray that we would avoid sin, that you would help us to be vigilant, to watch and pray, knowing that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Help us to avoid this. But when we do fall and stumble into sin, help to remind us that we have a mediator, an advocate, in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and may we turn to him and find rest for our souls. Thank you for this reminder of your grace in Christ and how you've turned the valley of trouble into a door of hope. And here are our prayers. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.